0: Welcome to SICKCAST, brought to you by SICK Research Institute, illuminating every path. Guru Fateh, welcome to the SICKCAST. Thank you for joining us. Today's podcast is going to be a recording of a webinar that aired November 14th. The webinar was titled Stories That Transform Children. It was hosted by Manvinder Kaur. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thank you for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sick Research Institute. This webinar will begin with a 40-minute moderated discussion between our presenters, after which we will have 40 minutes of Q&A from the audience. So please drop your questions in the chat box and be sure to include your name and city. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to today's panelists. First, we have Deanna Singh. Deanna Singh is an accomplished author, educator, business leader, and champion for marginalized communities. She authored three children's books, I Am a Boy of Color, I Am a Girl of Color, and Cloth Crown, and a leadership book, Purposeful Hustle. Singh lives in Wisconsin with her husband, Justin, and two sons, Zion and Zephaniah. This February, Deanna will be hosting a three-day virtual summit, How to Be an Ally, where participants will learn a healthy, positive framework for talking about and taking action on racial equity in the workplace. Um, And I'll be throwing a link for how you can register for that um, virtual summit in our chat box in a little bit. Next, we have Inikor. Inikor is the creative director at the Sikh Research Institute. Inikor is an esteemed and passionate author, poet, and painter. Recently, she broadened her creative artistry into publishing a children's book series, Journey with the Gurus, that is inspired by the life and teachings of Guru Nanak Sahib. Her other children's books are Saki Time with, Nan- Nani- with Naniji, Thank You Guru, Daddy's Turban, and The Story of Us. Today, she resides in Fairfield, Connecticut, USA, and continues to bring multifaceted perspectives to her work. And lastly, we have Simranjeet Singh. Simranjit Singh is a writer, teacher, scholar, and activist. Simran is the author of a new children's book from Penguin Random House, Foja Singh Keeps Going, the true story of the oldest person to ever run a marathon, the first from a major publisher to feature a sick story. Simran is currently writing an adult nonfiction book for Penguin Random House entitled More of This Please, Sick Wisdom for the Soul. This fall, Simran is teaching a program at Columbia University and Trinity University, (coughs) excuse me, on anti-racism as a spiritual practice. Please welcome today's panelists.
2: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for for having me today.
1: Great, thank you all for being here today and for everyone celebrating, whether it's Vandi Jordivas or Diwali, um, I think this is a great way to start our day. Uh, the story of Chhor Divas is dear to the community, as we know, uh, and what, what better way than to start the day by speaking about narratives and storytelling. Um, so particularly Chhor Divas is not only a story um, of the Guru as liberator, but it's also a story of human rights and vastness, um, but it's also a story that's seldom known. I know it's not a story that I heard until I sought it out myself, so today we are joined by three trailblazers in their fields, Deanna Singh, Eni Gore, Simranjit Singh, who will be speaking about their work within the field of children's books, which I think is very, um, yeah, very prominent that we are speaking about it on this day. Um, so thinking about, as we think about stories and what stories get told, I think in the COVID era narratives around sex have really focused around um, sex serving Lunger, or particularly where I'm located in Canada, uh, unraveling there the stars to save individuals who are drowning. But I also think um, in a post 9-11 world, mainstream ideas of who six are is at least somewhat clear. Um, we know how popular media portrays six as IT specialists, as cab drivers, as convenience store owners, or um, as goofy sidekicks. We even, I think sometimes, do it to ourselves where we create characters of our own communities Um, but like i said today's panelists uh, who are joining me today are challenging these narratives through children's books among their vast other avenues where they're doing this challenging as, as well um they challenge these narratives through what i believe are true characters so with that i'll begin our conversation and i'll I give my first question to Simranjeet. Simranjeet, thank you for joining us. I think generally the audience is aware of the significance of representation um, and what sharing diverse stories means, especially in spaces like children's books. Um, But what is the danger of a single story? particularly, as I said, in a post 9-11 world. And I know you've spoken about this in your work. Um, Yeah, what is the danger of a single story and how does your work take that into consideration?
0: I appreciate that. And I I agree with you that that many in the audience will um, be aware of the ways in which Sikhs are portrayed or actually not portrayed, right? Like a lot of our experience um, in North America, especially has been one of invisibility, right? People see us, uh, but they don't know who we are, and we don't show up in popular culture in any way. And that is a, is a really painful experience for, for many of us and our families. You know, this is something my parents struggled with. When they first moved to the country, what does it look like to find uh, justice and fairness for your kids uh, in a world where people don't even know who you are and they don't care, right? That's That's a real challenge so one of one of the things we've seen and one of the things i've actually struggled with myself in the post 9 11 moment is that there have been more opportunities for six to become known Um, the challenge is there's there's been a singular framework for the most part around how those stories are told and that's through the story of victimization right people will in, in the States at least, and I've worked a lot, especially with the coalition uh, on the media side of things, the only time people wanna tell our stories, the only time people are interested in us is when we are dealing with the hate crime situation. And I think that's important, right? It's it's helpful to have that attention for, for multiple reasons, right? for advocacy, for policy, just for connecting and, and creating awareness. But it's really flattening It's really dehumanizing when your entire personhood or your entire community is only seen through a single lens, right? Like that creates, it's a better problem than not being seen, but it's still a problem. And what we really need is to have multiple lenses, right? Like if we are real people who are dynamic and robust and diverse, then that has to be shown. And so the challenge for us has been, and it continues to be, how do we break through uh, that singular framework of victimhood and start telling our own stories in ways that reflect who we are as people. The authenticity that comes with that only comes when we are telling those stories. So I think there's there's a need for us as a community to seize power, right? To say, we will tell our stories and we can tell our own stories. And that's what I love about what Deanna and Innie and so many others are doing in the community right now in a way that we haven't really seen before. In terms of In terms of my own book with Foggia that, that that was a major impulse for me. How do we train on how Sikhs see themselves, right? We don't see ourselves as victims, that's not part of our worldview. Um, we see ourselves as resilient, we see ourselves as optimistic and living in Jardimba. And so Foggia Jessing meeting him uh, and spending time with him really sort of spoke to me mm-hmm. about a way in which we could share a beautiful story with the world that brings out these multiplicities of our identities, the richness of who we are, a different way of thinking about what our heroes can look like, Um, right? Like you have somebody who not just is a sardar, but also somebody who is an immigrant, somebody who is elderly, somebody who's dealt with disability. From a justice lens, this brings intersectionality uh to our our new vision of a hero but from a community perspective this helps us go beyond that that singular and dehumanizing lens of victimization into something that's far more authentic and far more helpful for us as a community Mm
1: -hmm. thank you thank you for that samranjeet i think i really i appreciate that perspective um, and the intersectionality that goes into character making because i think it really speaks to Our lived realities as intersectional individuals. Um, So Deanna, I'm going to relegate my next question to you. In your work, um, you speak a lot of two realities, this reality within your home and then the reality outside of it. Um, And then I know in our conversation beforehand, you spoke about the reality within the Gordwara in which the 2012 Oak Creek massacre occurred, and then the reality of the Gordwara that you were at. Um, across town. Could you speak a little to these apparent dual realities and how we make sense of, and perhaps, as you say, bridge um, the two? Sure. Well, first of all, I just wanna say a big
2: thank you um, to the Seek Research Institute and for the invitation to be here, and a big thank you to everybody who's watching. You know, I think this, um, and I wanna just make a quick comment on what Simran said too. You know, it's this idea of being able to bring in and have power over our own narrative that is the most motivating factor. I think in the work that I do, you know, not to speak for them, but in the work that Semrin does and the work that Annie does, that this idea of being able to control some of the story and really tell the story from the perspective, from our own perspective, and give it all of the beautiful flavor that it requires in order for people to fully understand it. I, I just, There's something so powerful. There's something that like gives me tingles when I think about um, doing the work and doing the work through that lens, and so it's just an honor to be able to be here to have this conversation, to be on the, on the phone with two of, of of the people that I'm a huge fan of, uh, you know, and to be able to to share the platform with you. So, I first just wanted to say it was just a moment of gratitude because again, you can write these things and you can do these things and put them out into the world, but until you know somebody actually sees the work and somebody reflects it back to you, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. real. And so in many ways, this is a, um, a big moment um, for me as, as an author, it makes me feel more real, not just that the story is out there, but that people are, are listening and people care. And I think it gets right uh, to your question, there When you're talking about this idea, you know, of dual realities, like what is happening inside your home and what is happening outside your home, I think for me as a child, one of the big things, and the reason why I kind of describe this, is that like, you know, in inside our house. Now I, I live in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. Inside our house, it almost felt like the same as it does when I go home when I'm in, you know, our bend. Like, you know, it like. It smells the same. We do the same things, right? We have the same joy. There's just something about it that, no matter whether I'm in India or if I'm in, you know, this this suburban area, like it, it feels like home. Um, and there's a sense of like being able to show up fully and completely with all that that we are. And I think as a child, one of the things that I really struggled with is that you know I'd leave my house and go into a world where nobody understood what was happening in my home, where everything that happened in my home seemed really, really exotic, right? And seemed like this other thing. And I felt often as a child that I had to make a choice, you know, that I couldn't have both. I, I could I could be, you know, Indian. I could be, um, you know, I could have, have roti and dal and I could have, I could speak in Punjabi, but I could only really do that at home. And at Godwara, you know, and maybe at my auntie's house or, you know, but just only in those those places. But then I had to be very different, right, when I was when I was outside of that space. And I think um, those realities competed for me as a child. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to write The Cloth Crown is because I wanted to show that those realities don't have to compete. As a matter of fact, when those two realities exist um, together, they, first of all, they do coexist together, regardless of what anybody says. I am the same person when I'm here at home as I am when I'm in the community. So they already do coexist. But to give some narrative to that, to show what it really feels like, to show the the challenges um, in that in those moments. And so, you know, when you talk about these dual realities, for me, one of the way to bring them together is to tell stories, right? And to bring people into those spaces. And so, one of my favorite things to do is to say, like, can I tell you what it felt like to grow up as a biracial woman in a suburb of of Milwaukee? Can I just tell you like what that was like and how how it was hard and and what was awesome about it? Um, and I think that that's, that's like a really big thing. I think the other thing um, that I've found to be really powerful and Simran, I really appreciate what you said. So that's like, you know, kind of talking about home and, and outside of home. But to the second part of your question, and really speaking to uh, the the massacre of, of 2012, you know, on that day, we were actually holding a kanbar at the Godawara. My, my son was just born. He was just three months old. We were there. It was early in the morning. You know, my family was getting all the food together. Um, and I remember sitting on the floor, and I remember, like, as things started to unfold around us, just thinking, like, I can't believe this is happening in such a sacred place. And even though it wasn't happening in the in the gurdwara that we were in, it was happening in the gurdwara across uh, across town from us. There's only two gurdwaras in this area, right? So, you know, in the in the other one, I couldn't help think like, what does this mean, right? What does this mean for me in this moment? And how will I tell this story to my children? Like, how will I be able to um, communicate to them? not only how we responded, but who we are as a people and how how this influenced us in this moment. And so to Simran's point, I think one of the things I've really tried to emphasize is that don't, you know, I'm glad that you're here and I want to tell you who we are in this moment of tragedy. Like, look at how we have shined even in this moment of tragedy. But I also want you to be here tomorrow. Right? And I want you to come back to this, I want you to come back to this community in more than just our painful moments. I want you to come back to this community in our moments of joy, too, in our moments of celebration. And so I think that also, um at least for me, infused, it, I didn't know at that moment, right? Sitting in that I had lots of things going through my mind. I didn't know in that moment that a book would come out of it. But I think it's it's appropriate, right? That some piece of art would come out of it because it, I, there's this bigger story. That's not just about what happened in that moment. It's this bigger story of what's happening um, around us all of the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I found um, particularly poignant about um, you telling that story was the response. Um, and I thought that was a great way of of understanding um, and thinking through such a yeah such a tragic moment. Um, so thinking more widely about representation um, and the characters that we portray, I know, Inigour, some of your work differs from the other panelists, as it explicitly tells stories rooted in Sikki. And your latest work kind of implicitly invokes representation, where one of the characters just happens to be sick. Could you share a little bit about this journey of how you've understood uh, representation?
3: Um. Definitely, I'll, I'll speak to that. But you know, it's really um, great to be here with Deanna and with Simran to speak about something which is so dear to my heart. Um, you know, to Deanna's point, when she was talking about the massacre in Wisconsin, we don't have a book to, honor, you know, to, to capture that. But then we also do not have a book on 1984, right? And why is that? That's the question. So those are the things that, yes, while we celebrate, we must also honor the things that have happened to us as a community, because if we do not tell that story, no one's going to tell that story. And who best than the people who have been through the process and suffered at multiple levels. That story, 84, touched each one of us at a very different level. Wisconsin touched us at a very different level because of time, what if we had something that would bridge that as how do the six respond to that? But also to tell that in a way where it is not as what Simran has said and Deanna, that being the victim. I mean, that's the danger of that one story of always talking about the bully, which is important. But when you just focus on that moment, you've actually uh, made us to be much smaller than we are. So to your point, Madhinder um, you ask, my first focus was actually uh, the faith, the guru, because we don't have, a, we did not, and I still say that, the books that, I grew up with biblical stories. I did not know Sakis. I did not know the parables of the faith. I grew up with biblical stories, Beautiful books, illustrated, German illustrations, literally magical about the life of Jesus. And literally I was drawn to it. Um, and then when my children were born, there was nothing like that that I could give them. I mean, keep in mind, if I, you know, if I'm giving them Angelina the Ballerina. And then I'm also giving them something from which has been produced from India, which is on you know less than adequate paper. The illustrations and the English is that they, you're creating a difference right there. And so that was so I began a little bit of storytelling to them about about the guru, right? The little bit that I knew. And then later on, it really dawned on me and the boys spoke that you need to do this. And it was an uphill battle because there was nothing, there was nothing, I knew what I wanted, but not having entered that field, I was not an author, but I knew I needed to do that. So of course it took time. It's been, you know, 10, 11 years now. And it was really critical for me, for the children to fall in love or the children to have something magical in their hand, that magic feeling. And I wanted the children to be able to take that book to school because I'm, you know, being an educator, I'm very aware that the children have independent reading, but they couldn't take any of our books to school because they were not worthy of their teacher approving. And for me, the highlight moment was when the children said, we, this journey with the gurus got approved by my teacher. I mean, for me, that was it. Yes, it's gotten into where that child is comfortable enough to show it to his friend, to show it to her, her teacher and okay with it. So my focus was really on the gurus. And then also the. Um, then it came into how do we celebrate because the children want to be able to celebrate. You know, we have bar mitzvah, we have christening, we have all these other things. What, are, what, are, what do our children have? Hence the title came of, you know, the name came, um, Namkaran Ceremony, the naming ceremony. And the second was Dastarbandi, which speaks to that narrative of building the, the child. But my other story speaks to actually more so to Diana and Simone what they were talking about, the story of us. Um, that is where I bring in the principle of the faith the without really going there, it's that oneness. You know, Diana, you talk about that in your home, you felt safe and you know, or you were fully present. Well, in my home, growing up, I was the most I was adored right? uh, by my grandfather, by my mother, my father and my sister, I was adored. But I stepped out of that house. And I was a child that was the last one to be picked to be on anyone's team. I was a child that was called black. I was a child that was said, if you touch her hand, you're going to get black. I was a child who went to, you know, parents' homes, uh, my friends' homes and at, you know, milk and cookie time, the mothers would say, if you don't drink your milk, you will be as black as any. So I grew up with that. So for me, story of us was when I was reading the book um, by Nayan Chandan and he, in that first chapter, he said, we are all from Africa. It was like an aha moment for me. And I knew that I needed to write that book. I needed to write that for myself. And to be able to show that we come from the one place, we are the one. And that entire principle of Ekumkar was right there. So that's why I didn't want to highlight any child. It's we're all one and just have one sick character there. And the children have said, oh my gosh, there's a sick in the book. Because that's what I wanted to be. Now it's like, they're just part of the fabric. They are one, they are part of it. It's not a separate story. That same weight. I wanted them to have the same weight and the same voice that they are one. That difference I wanted to take away from that. That was, you know, and that's pretty much now where I want to focus. I do want to finish the series of the celebrations of what we have, um, you know, the milestones, but I want to focus more on that the oneness, the ikumkar principle of the faith without making it religious, but definitely that underlying factor that we are one, that oneness and how we embrace that in every shape, way or form.
1: Thank you for that. I think, yeah, even just hearing the three of you speak, I think we hear the different characters that can be, uh, illuminate from within the community, um, and I think these varying um, understandings and ideas of representation are, yeah, are they are just that, they vary um, for all of us. And I know, Samranjeet, your work touches upon these motifs of representation um, in mainstream media, along with everyone else's as well, uh, and in our current moment, um, when hints of representation are popping up. So particularly I'm thinking about um, VP-elect Kamala Harris. So these hints of representations are emerging and these these moments of representation have come before. They've emerged before. Um, So what do these perhaps, yeah, these glimpses of representation, what have they meant historically and what do they mean currently? And particularly here, I'm thinking about the reality of Harris, both her in power and in moments where she's validated institutionalized racism. So, yeah, thinking about these nuanced examples, what has representation meant historically and currently and how can we think through it and maybe critique it?
0: Yeah, it's such a great, great framing of the question. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to get questions around representation. It's very uncommon uh, to have such a nuanced approach, even in the way you articulated it, because the, the standard, the, there are two ways in which people t- typically talk about representation. They will either say um, representation is all we need to achieve liberation and justice in our society, or they'll say representation is just a facade and it doesn't actually do anything or change anything. And so those, those two perspectives sit on opposite poles of the spectrum, but I think I think what you're implying in, in your question and where I stand with it is is that it's somewhere in between. Um, that representation is progress, especially in a world where we haven't had uh, seats at the table for people of different backgrounds, uh, including for six. Um, but it's not going to solve all our problems, right? There's, there's something more that needs to be done. And, and your example of Kamala Harris is a very good one, um, that there is a lot of power in having a woman of color, a Black woman, a DC woman, uh, in this high office. Um, but as, as we all know, and those of us who are engaged in conversations around race and racism often, uh, there's a lot of internalized racism. There's a lot of internalized oppression, and we, each of us, um, turns that around and, and harms people in different ways. So, so it's just a very helpful framing for us to even and just acknowledge um, that representation isn't going to solve all of our problems, right? Like that's not what our uh, life experiences tell us. Like you've said, like you said in your question, when we've we've seen representation before. There are still problems, right? So <laughs> that can't be true. It's also yeah. not what Sikki teaches us, right? Like what Sikki teaches us is you do the work. Right? You keep going, and you work with justice, and, and this is, to me, a sign of progress, but it's not the solution. So, so what is, what's the value here, I guess, is, is the question. And there are a number of ways in which we can think about it. Um, in children's literature, why, why does representation matter? There's, there's a lot of children's writers, and, and the scholar brought up this idea, talk about windows and mirrors. And it really resonates with me. What they mean by windows and mirrors is you can create empathy and humanize people by giving them windows through which they can see people and have experiences that they wouldn't otherwise. Right. So, so imagine um a white kid sitting in Texas where I grew up, seeing this book with this sort of our protagonist. And just seeing them as as a family as as good people as people who have challenges and overcome them right like that's a way of connecting but it's also a mirror it's a mirror for us and our kids who can then imagine themselves as being the protagonists of their own story as having resilience and perseverance and per- all these values that we want to instill and so that's that's one example right like i'm thinking of my own daughter seeing uh vice president Kamala. Paris as, as a basic woman, and saying, Oh, that might be possible for me one day. And I think the reason that we know this to be true is we've all had experiences, including myself, of, of setting limitations on like me growing up in sports. Like it was really hard to imagine being a professional athlete because I didn't see any, I didn't see any sex in that world. Um, and, and the same is true across the board in, in all of our spheres, right? And so there's something really powerful there. The other thing I want to say is that when we increase representation and we have diversity at the table and we bring our voices to the table, um, then we have the possibility of doing better, right? So like there are lots of ways in which six and other minority communities are harmed by policies. That would not that that are not malicious in nature, but have just been instituted by people who weren't thinking about us in our lives, right? Like a lot of the a lot of the headwear policy. It, I mean, it takes sports for, for an example. A lot of headwear policy is not considering they were not written to exclude. It's not intended that way but there just wasn't that sort of representation at the table. And so this is progress in that sense too. It will set us up for dealing with the direct forms of racism that we encounter by creating connection, but it'll also help us deal with institutional racism that our community struggles with uh, and create more opportunities for for equity and justice that that we can all have. And so that to me is is the value of the progress. And and we want to be mindful of, it's not going to solve all of our problems, but it can really do some work for us, and it's really important for us to acknowledge that.
2: If I if I could just jump on uh, what Simran just said, and actually one of the things that Innie said. So one of the things that I'm able to bring to these conversations. So I want to like hit it right on the head, is that I am African American, and I'm also sick. Right, so I have these two worlds, and I grew up at the intersection of of East and West, and and grew up, you know, really representing in many ways what. President-elect Kamala Harris represents because that's her background also. And so what I would add, I agree 100 percent with what Semrin said, but I would also illustrate that or I'd, I'd articulate here in this moment that what Any said is just as important. Right. Like that there is some things that are happening within our community where I would get conversations. Are you Indian enough? Are you African-American enough? Right. And I think that even during the election cycle, there were a number of people and I was part of a lot of conversations where people were saying, well, she's not Indian enough. You know, or she she's not African American enough. She and and I think that the other. So I would say that if I added a third thing to what you what you just said, Simone, is I think there's another part here. There's also a part for us to do some internal work as a community, for us to really think about like how are we? You know, we're in all these different places all over the world. We we are we are growing in our intersectionality, and how do we create a space that really welcomes? Um, the fact that we have these intersections, and so I think there's another opportunity just within our own community—not um, just you know in our representation, not just in what we do, you know, with with this moment or what we do when we're at the table, but also like how we're talking about ourselves and how how welcoming or non welcoming we're being for the different things that are happening uh, within the community. I would have loved as a little girl to have a Kamala Harris because it would have been like validation that that i'm okay right that it's okay to have this unique mix as opposed to often feeling like nope, you have to choose you, you can't you can't you can't be
3: both yeah mm-hmm. you know um i mean when someone was speaking um us all came to i mean and, and because this is just happening right now when you know if you're not on the table and the and the policies that are created and right now there seems to be a feeling that people are, are jumping on this bandwagon, wanting to include everyone in. And I'll give you an example. So I was asked to consult on a on a book, and it came to me, and you know, it was a set character, and um, so I had a you know call with the author. I said, "Why did you choose the name of that that?" you know, what, how did you decide that name was the appropriate name? Because this is the main character of the book. And he said, well, I like the sounding of the name. And I said, but this name doesn't fit the community. This name does not represent. Well, I said, are you going to be talking about this man's village? And, oh yes, of course. I said, you haven't done your homework just because you like the sound of the name doesn't mean it is the name. And you are basing this entire novel on a, you know on the on a sick character and the relationship with the world war, you know, whatever. And that's that part is so dangerous that mm-hmm. even we get represented, it's not accurate. It's like, what is this? Yeah. And that's the part where, you know, I don't know if. Deanna, you or Semrin, where, you know, you want to have more of a say and being at that table, at the table where the publisher are there, or the thing, like, you can't put this out. It doesn't speak to the community. This doesn't fly. Instead of just saying, Oh, wonderful, there's a sick character, let's publish it. You know, we'll put that checkbox box off. That's not what we want. I mean, that's not what any community wants. And that's a grave injustice. To the person who's buying the book and reading, and changing that narrative again, so that's what is compelling. I think that's for you, Diana. De- uh, also, I mean, that was compelling for me too. That if we have to uh, compromise on what we want the narrative to be, then we've got to you've got to publish it ourselves. I mean, you know, for one of the books, for one of my books, I mean, I had a publisher uh, and. Um, he asked me quite point blank, he wanted two chapters removed. And I said, I cannot. And you know, when I said, why? Because I thought it was a space issue. And he said, because they don't fit into his narrative, which he wants to talk about the same. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And quite bluntly, uh, he said to me, he said, do you know what you are giving up? And it's the biggest publishing house in India. They are the one, you know, I mean, it's it was going to be published in three languages. And I said, uh, yes. I said, but do you know what I am giving up? I'd never be able to look at myself in the mirror. If I, if I, if, if the reasons what he gave me, were were because they, they, and they're central to the faith.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: How could I do that? So it is really a fine line as to when you invest and what you are willing to compromise in the stories. The authenticity of the story, the authenticity of the writer, of the author, is so vital in the stories of communities which are not in the mainstream. That to me is, you know, when people say, "Why would you do that?" It's not for the glory of the uh, or to make the money. For heaven's sake, there is no money in this. You know, <laughs> everyone thinks you're reaping in the money, and it's it's just flying. Yes, of course, we all know that. But it is so important to be authentic and to tell that story, and to ha- and to leave something for the children. You know, I grew up with. I mean, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I don't know. The, uh, you know, Simran, Professor Forensing was read 60 years after he died and his work is so valid today. So at that time period, his work wasn't honored. It is honored now. It is really, it's something which we live and breathe. So for me, that's been that moment, is that if Professor Forensing wasn't read and right now I know what a difference he's making in my life, I am sure what we are doing may not be embraced with that uh, within the community, but it definitely will at some point in time. I really love what you
2: just said. And I think that's the same motivation. I, you know, I, I, when I think about meeting Fuja Singh, right, like I, and I told, I told this to Zimmer when I first found out that he was writing the book, I'll never forget that moment, right? I'll, I'll never forget like what it felt like, like how, proud I was just to be able to stand next to him and to see his kindness, right? And and to feel his kindness. And as I was going through your book, I could feel his kindness. I could feel his energy. But that comes when you are able to stay true to the story, when you're able to stay true to the people, you know, that you're represented. And in our book on cloth Crown, this is not, I wrote this, yes, but many of the words that came from it came, literally fell out of my father's mouth. Right, they were. There they are the stories that I heard. There, how I heard him, you know, talking to my my nieces, or my, excuse me, my nephews, and to my brothers, and the conversations that we had around our own table. So, in many ways, it's it is. I wrote. Them, but they were—they're not, not my words. If that makes sense, right? They're—it's this opportunity to—to to again give life to and to depict something um, in an authentic way that we've had experience with. And you're right—you know, sometimes we have to do that, even if the—the the mainstream is not ready for us. Sometimes we have to do that, even if it means we're coming out of our own pocket or if we're not sure if anybody will ever read it. But sometimes there is something. And you get this feeling, I feel like, as an author, as an artist, and you realize there's something that's way bigger than you. I mean, you know how nerve-wracking it is to write a book about a bug and to be like a non-bug-wearing woman? Like, this is such a nerve-wracking book. I actually had everything ready to go for about a year before I pushed the enter button to like have the book, you know, compiled and put together. Why? Because there was a moment where you're like, is this, is it okay for me to tell this story? Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, is this my story? No, it actually isn't, but it's part of my story. And I'm being authentic to it. And as soon as my dad read it, I was like, Daddy G, can you just read it? Make sure, like, you know, am I, and he read it. I'm like, okay, if nobody else reads it, my dad can smile after he reads it. Then I know I've done good. Right. And my brother saw it. He read it. He's like, wow, Deanna. Like I could see it on his face. I could see the transformation on his face. Okay, right. Then I know. Like, yeah, that's that's the that's the moment, right? When you when the teacher says yes, bring that book in. It's okay. Those are the moments uh, that I think create the big movements. Mm-hmm. It's those little ones, but it's hard. Yeah.
0: I'll Just I'll just throw in there. Um... What I'm hearing from the both of you is, and you haven't named it in this way, but I'm hearing it from you is, is seva, right? These books are, they're seva for for multiple reasons, and I think there's one more dimension of seva that comes with this work that you were sort of referring to. You know, part of part of what you were describing was this book may not land as well now as it will in the future, but the other thing you're doing, and, and I, I mean, I can say this confidently because I've experienced the impact of your work on my own, is you're opening up opportunities for other people to do this work, right? And I think about people like, you know, the first mm-hmm. book that we had, a children's book in our home, we grew up with Bushbinder, Auntie's, the boy with the long hair. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, the ones we've been reading at our home for years, like navjot Kor's books or Jesse Kor, you know, there are so many. Um, and you're right, like there's there's no money in it. It's, it's hard work. But people do it for those reasons. And then what that does is it creates more spaces for us to tell our own stories. And so from that perspective, I see this as justice work, right? This is Seva in the sense that, you know, my my intention is not to, you know, get a book with Penguin and then and then walk away and keep that relationship to myself. Like, what I really want to do is open up floodgates, right? Like, let's show these publishers that there is a demand, that there is a connection, that people want these books. Like that is that's as well. And so it's it's something that you both are doing already and so many others have been doing, but it's it's something that really is of consequence for our community.
1: Thank you everyone. I really appreciate this this conversation and I think as we keep going, I think I just keep more and more questions keep popping into my head, but I would encourage everyone who is attending to also throw their questions into the Q and A box, and we can open it up to everyone that's joined us today. Um, something that I picked up on that the three of you kind of alluded to was this um, perhaps lack of or an awareness from the community um, for this representation, because I think we're we're talking about, and it's been illuminated, the importance of representation um, and the various forms that it can take. But I don't think that's always tangible to the community or on a grander scale. Um, So I'll throw this question out to anyone who wants to pick it up. Um, What are some tangible ways that the community can support books by authors who are invested in representing sick children in literature?
2: By the books. Uh, tell your friends about the books, right? I think th- that's probably the the simplest thing that you that you can do, and and again, it, it might sound coy, but it, there there isn't it is isn't, no. Um, you know, ill intention behind saying that. The reason why it's important is because when you buy the books and you share them with your children or you share them with your school or you share them with your library, what you're doing is you're getting at the core of why we wrote them. You're getting the message out and you're giving it uh, to people who can see themselves in it. So again, there's no financial, really there's no financial gain in this. This is hard work for sure. But the reason why that's important is because The stories you want to see a sad author. I always tell children, if you want to see a sad author, it's an author who has no readers. And so I think the number one thing we can do is to tell people buy the books, share the books, you know, ask for the books when we go to our wherever we buy our books from so that they put them on the shelves and keep them stocked. That's the kind of work that can be done at the individual level that has, I think, really grand impact.
3: You know, it's. um... It's interesting you asked that question, and it's something which I have struggled with because while Deanna is very good at, you know, buy the book, it's very hard for me to say buy the book because I come from maybe um, a different school of thought, or I, maybe it's a different generation um, which says, you know, the minute it leaves you, it's no longer yours. You've put it on that platter, and now it's the universe. Um, will do what it needs to do. Because you've put it on the platter, you have offered it to the people, you've offered it to the community, to the world. Now it's the effort of the one who wants to consume it. That effort is not my responsibility. I've done my bit of putting it on a beautiful platter and offering it to the universe. It's hard for me to, um, actually it's extremely challenging for me, to say, you need to buy the book because, you know, Professor Singh is such an important figure in my life. And I related to that. I related to him and that this man was this giant of thought. And if he was not recognized in his time period, who am I? So it's you know it's for me it's that while I agree hundred percent with you Deanna and actually I would love it if people would don't even buy it just go to your libraries and ask for it sure buy it you know but that's what it is but because I'm so attached to poor and saying you know that this is it's a hard journey for me but you thank you for saying what you did Deanna because it's and that's what, what we do is that something which is difficult for me to say, you said it, bravo, thank you. I honor it. And <laughs> well, this is 100% to tell something. What mean, we just, to, just
2: to be clear. clear, I I do uh also do what I what I profess. This is not a uh this is not something I'm just saying, right? Like this is this is something I believe in, not just, you right. know, our my book, but, but all of them. Um, Great. That, that's what, to Simran's point, like that's what's gonna get people who have more power and authority to distribute and get them into you know, Scholastic and all these other, these places. The reason they'll do that, it's sort of, you know, what, what comes first? The chicken or the egg kind of a thing? Like in order for, in this case, in order for, for big publishers to take on this work and have more characters and have more representation, we have to show, like we have to be able to demonstrate that we're able to do it on our own too. Um, and you help us create that case
0: yeah I'll, I'll echo that um that point yeah i i think so so to, to sort of take a step back you know i think if, if we're looking at this as as a way of building community power and, and of doing SEVA for our communities um, then, then first we recognize the problem and and the problem here is that and, and i, I dealt with this firsthand, um, as I started pitching books to publishers, no one's interested. No, no one wants a book about six. And the reason that they say that is there's no market. Uh, there's no proof right. of market. And, and the reason there's no proof of market is that this is the chicken and egg thing. The other thing, like no one's tried it. And so now we've tried it. We have these books out there and now we have to show them that there is interest. And so it, it's not just about buying a book. If you can, that's great. And that's wonderful. Uh, but there are other really easy things you can do, like requesting your library or your local bookstores to stock them. Um, that's really big. Uh, you can go on Amazon or other websites and rate and review the books. Um, you can go to uh, Goodreads and, and submit a review like these are two to five minute tasks that you can do that make a significant incremental impact. And so um, and and just the last thing I'll say is, uh, core- Life, the blog K-A-U-R-L-I-F-E.org uh, has this beautiful post about um, a listing of all the books with sick characters. And so you can sort of get a catalog and spend an hour and just knock out a bunch of reviews and give every single book of them. And that's that's what we've done in our home. And I, I would encourage you all to do this. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone. I
1: think uh, for me, it seems like it's both the purchasing the book and taking those small incremental steps um it's also yeah of making that conscious choice uh, to purchase um a book from someone from within the community which i think as i look to buy presents for my like little nieces and nephews that's definitely something that wasn't available for me before but now as i'm exposed to this world and i engage in this conversation um it's an easy and wonderful present for a three to four-year-old. Um, so it makes, makes my life a lot easier. Um, yeah, so maybe um, we do have one question from the audience. Um, it is from a young member. My name is Adit Singh, and I'm 12. And I live in New Jersey. Your books are so good. How do I make a children's book for everyone? No, that's a vast question. But I thought I would honor this and ask it to everyone.
2: So I would love to to just share uh, something really quick. First of all, Adit, that's amazing. And I'm so glad that you're thinking about entering into the world of storytelling. Um, One of the things that we actually do with our children's books is I have two boys. They're eight and 12 years old, and they actually run the um, children's book imprint. So our children's book imprint is called Story to Tell Books, and they're the ones who are responsible. So Adit, I always tell people, they're my bosses. They're the uh, the co-chairman, excuse me, of the of the company. And so they get to make the decisions and I go to them and to get a final approval for any books that we're going to put out. And one of the really exciting things that they decided to do was actually to write their own um, chapter book. So they're writing their own chapter book and they're really talking about their um, they're using a story. So it's all based in story, but they're sharing their opinion about uh, immigration. So what I would tell you, I think the number one thing, you know, that they did. And so they're almost finished. They're actually they they sent all their materials to the editor. So they're waiting to get their their feedback back from the editor. But one of the things that I think they would start with is knowing what you want to tell your story about. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to decide what's the story that you want to tell. And what my kids did that I thought was so fun is they actually um, drew out their story. So they they did what we call like a um, a board. They did a storyboard, and they they had big pieces of paper, and we had them you know taped to the wall. So maybe ask. a adult but if, if they say it's okay do something like this where or put it in a notebook where you just kind of make it and you can draw it out they were stick figures these aren't beautiful drawings but just to kind of think about like what does my storyline look like right what what am I trying to achieve with my story and once you start with that then I think you can go into the the writing process and um if you follow us you'll you'll be able to see they're going to do a big presentation and it's going to be a free kind of thing that you can do with with my kids they're going to actually show you how they went from storyboard all the way through the editing process and finding the artist and and kind of all of that in february so if you uh if you connect with us or have an adult connect with us um would love to be able to share but i'm just so excited to hear
3: that you're thinking you're thinking about going into this space but you know that's a great question because wherever i go i also all, i have all the all the kids won't write their own story (laughs) so I I prepare these packets you know I take a eight and a half 11 sheet about 15 of them fold it staple it and that's what I give to the kids I said okay now draw the story because it's so much easier for them to draw and then and then the words come later because they're giggling over the stories and then like what is so funny about this? Because this animal is doing actually this, you know, and we've got them shaped. So the imagination is working. So for me, those are the priceless things, you know, to make those um, that drawing which you, Diana, which you talked about. But it's so easy. Just take that paper, fold it, staple it, and there you go. That's your first step. And there'll be many, many, many. And the one thing I would I would tell him would be date it. Put a date on every story because then you'll see your own journey mm-hmm. that, oh that's what i thought but i don't think about it now so to date your work is really wonderful but congratulations you're on it and we're so excited that the next generation is right out there
1: and we're ready to we're ready to buy it <laughs> Yes, <laughs> well, yeah. we've, we've got at least four people to buy that yeah. book <laughs> Yeah I think this is just like a great example of like opening up that space, creating that space for others to see themselves in this work and to be able to do this work. Um, Which honestly yeah like even as I embark in my work it is because there have been other people who have done it before me and I see myself in those spaces. So it's great to see this like tangible example of this space that has been opened up for other individuals within the community. Um, Another question we have I will relegate this one to Simranjeet. So this is from Gurpreet from Malaysia. Um, where do you see the future of Sikh based storybooks heading to? And what advice would you give future Sikh authors slash writers who are, or will be writing more about Sikh representation? And I would invite everyone else to um, add to the, to the question as well.
0: Yeah, please. I mean, I, I think the future is bright. Um, I'm really excited. I think, you know, 40, 50 years ago, we couldn't even imagine what a sick children's book would look like or having a sick character in a children's book. Um, 20 years ago, we started to see some of that uh, through labors of love, people putting in their own income and working out of their garages and running from store to store to print and staple and bind and, and all these things. Um, and now we're starting to break through. Um, you know, there is now, um you know, my book is with Penguin Random House. Uh, there's a beautiful book by Supriya Gelker, The Many Colors of Harpreet Singh, that was published by Leon Low Books, which is from Barnes and Noble. Um, there is a new book coming out uh, with Little Brown called Hair Twins by Raki Merchandani about a father and his daughter um, and, and their morning ritual of doing their hair together, a sick father and sick daughter. So. I mean, it's this is not an anomaly. This is not, you know, something that's happened by accident, the community is really pushing and we're finding our ground. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what comes next. The other thing I'll say that I really love about the space is, and this is not true in every industry, but in, in children's publishing, the people who are making it are really uh, committed to helping other people who are interested. It's really hard to help for for a lot of reasons. But those who I know, including the people who have helped me, um, are really supportive. And so if you're interested in doing this work, um, find those people and reach out um, and let them know you're you're thinking about it and uh, you have a story. Would people be willing to review it? Will they be able to make introductions? Well, you know, anything. Um, but I think, I really think this is a communal effort and, and we're all going to benefit. And most importantly, our kids are going to benefit. And, and so that's, I think, where things are headed and why i'm so excited about it and i would also say this is true in other uh, genres of writing as well Um, that it's not just children's literature we're uh, making ground in other fields as well and we're starting to recognize like a lot of marginalized communities that we actually have things to contribute and, and people really want to hear from us and so just know in your heart even when the publishers or the agents say this is not relatable uh, just know, know, know that it is. Know that you have something valuable, and and put keep putting, putting it out there. And eventually, and, and I, I, you know, I'll just say it for myself, this was not an easy process to to land where I landed. I'm grateful that I have, but um, don't feel like you know you see a success and everything was perfect. I think it's it's a hard process for everyone. Every author I've ever talked to, um, so just put in the work and and uh, and be persistent.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Simranjeet. And if anyone else wants to chime in, please do feel free. Um, But I do think, um, you know,
3: particularly in the last 10 years, 10, 11 years, the number of children's books that have sick children's books that have come up have accelerated. Um, So that's, that's great news. Um, And, you know, to Simran's point that, you know, there are people, even if you get rejected, persevere. And the point is, what Simmons was so right, because if you truly believe in it, don't wait for anybody else. And this is where, you know, I want to tell the story of, you know, when my father, you know, when he was in uh, in Kuwait, he had gone from India, and he loved to play cricket. And the British, the Englishman, as he calls them, did not want, of course, you know, the Indian to play on his team, and he whined. I mean, he was, he was probably 20, 21. And he went to his father, you know, they're not letting me play. They don't want me on their team. They don't want this. And my grandfather just turned around and said, make your own team. I mean, it was that just do that. And so he went, so he took the ship back to India, and got gear for I think four teams, and started his own team. So that's that spirit. Don't let anyone say that you can't do it or that your story is not worth it even though you invest because it'll make it easier for somebody somebody else and now i mean he has a team he has a shield under his name that's not the point the point is you do it don't let anyone else define you that's it's been always been that you control your own story you control your own narrative and don't let anyone say that you can't do it and that your story is not worth it because your story is worth it. So just go for it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, yeah, it's a valid and relevant and also laborious process. But I think, I think it's worth it, um, if anything. I think having the people in this conversation speak about their experiences, I think really illuminates that. And I know um, all of the panelists today in their own ways are either part of or interact with educational organizations. And I know in the chat, there's been some suggestions around how we can uh, make these stories more accessible and available to the wider community. Um, But I guess the general question I can throw to um, to the panelists today is, how do we make sure that parents and educators and childcare workers in all capacities are engaging with and sharing these stories. Um, are there any, yeah, any way, any ways that you have found particularly fruitful?
2: I think just making the suggestion uh, can go a really long way. You know, so I think one of the things that I have found to be really powerful from people all over the world um, is going and having those conversations, like Anya was saying, with your library, and saying. You know what? I really would love to see more representation. Here's a list of books that would be great for you to showcase um, in, in and to have as part of your collection. Going to your local, you know, bookstore, whatever that might be, and saying, I mean, a lot of those decisions, right, are made by customers, and I think that oftentimes we leave that power on the table mm-hmm. because we don't even ask. We don't say. You know i'd really I'd really like to see these books and and a lot of these books being offered. I think another thing is when with our teachers, just saying, hey, do you ever do anything that really features or focuses on uh, the SIC culture? Is it something that I, can I share some resources, some resources from you? You know, from the, from the Institute, from, it, from a variety of different organizations that support our work as SICs. Can I, can I share some of this information with you? I think it'd be great for you to be able to incorporate it in some of the things that you're already doing in your classroom. These are all very, very simple asks. And quite frankly, especially if you come with the resource list, right? If you come with the materials. Um, educators, that's what they love. They they love getting material and they love being able to share it with young people. But if they they might be just missing the connection between the two and you can be that conduit.
3: I think the hesitation is, you know, we like it or not. And I, I don't like to always fall back on those but there is something resonant of the colonial culture, where we feel that our books and our stories and narratives are not worthy for the mainstream. And that's a very hard bridge to take over. I mean, I, you know, when I go to you know, homes where, and on their coffee table, I see books of every other uh, place, country, and European art and everything else, and I see nothing of six on that coffee table it sends a very powerful message mm-hmm. to the children that in your own home if your coffee table does not have a book that represents who you are that's the problem that's a shift um, and that's a hard shift I don't know, Subramanyam, if you have ever come across because I, I mean, this for me has been a really um, troubling point within the community of how they are not brand, uh, con, you know, they are not supporting their own brand, which is Sikhi, which is the faith, which is the Sikh culture, which is the Sikh literature. If the Sikhs themselves don't support it and do not um re- embrace it and do not rejoice in it it's difficult to push it through so what is that that prevents us from doing it I meanwhile we are talking about at the children's level there's another level right this is really at the bottom of the totem pole there's a lot that goes on before that so you know similar thoughts on that what is it uh, that prevents us you
0: know, I think, no, I think you're right. And and I think there's, um, it's, it's a collective psychology and it's one that, you know, that, that we carry individually and, and I'll be totally honest and say, it's something that I've struggled with as well. And, and, you know, we, we all struggle with these things in various ways and at different levels. Uh, my struggle with it hasn't been, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my tradition and, have these things available in my home like that. That's never really been my, my struggle. But my struggle has very much been, do I have something to contribute? Uh, do, do people care about our stories? And uh, do people care about what I have to say? And that's, I mean, you're right, it's at various levels. Like I remember being in college and in graduate school and feeling so nervous about speaking up in class, because I had those same questions, right? Do I have something to contribute? And, and it was all internalized right these are messages that we get from childhood and, and social science research is showing us now uh, the impact that these kinds of things have on us that you know it's not just about representation but all these other modalities of messaging that tell us you don't matter right like i i told this story recently i remembered um when i was a kid and asked a librarian i was six or seven i grew up in texas so i asked a librarian there were any children's books with six or Punjabis in them, and they said it's not relatable. And and I remember just being so upset by that and, and what that conveyed to me. And and so like I pushed back, but also what happens? And and this is like the way that we're talking about racism in the country. What happens when you're constantly weathering that storm, constantly being barraged by messages, implicit and explicit, saying you're not normal, you're not mainstream you're not supposed to be represented like you 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 can't help but take that in somehow and so how do we overcome that i think that's that's a real challenge and again i'm still struggling with that and and i'm pushing um but part of part of the solution for me is to is to look within our tradition and to see people like budunanik who are not part of mainstream society saying you know what i have something i have something special i have a different perspective and i'm going to share that with the world and i believe that it matters um and and for us to be walking in the footsteps of Nanak, what does that mean what does it look like for us to really embrace our distinctiveness with confidence but also with humility and i think i think that's such a tough line to balance you know usually we don't see that in our world right either you have confidence or you have humility um but it's something that our gurus lived and and i think that's that's something that we have to learn how to how to strike that balance as well
1: yeah i think um a, a narrative that i'm hearing here is both um, representation on a grander scale but also representation and support within our communities so a question i have this one i'll I'll throw it to Deanna, but everyone, please feel free to chime in. I know in your work, you speak about bridge building through division um, and the role that children's books can play in this endeavor. So in today's climate, in this post-election world, when like perhaps a bridge that was severed is starting to be built again. I'm trying to work with your um, build bridging. <laughs> um, or, or, yeah, be patient with me. How can we maybe so in a world where this bridge has perhaps been severed and it's like we see it kind of being built again? Um, how can we ensure that this bridge is built um, and not only um, on a grander within um, other communities or seeing representation from other communities, but also within our communities? Um, so building bridges within, which I know you mentioned and brought up. So yeah, I guess the the vastness and nuance of bridge building. How do we ensure it happens?
2: You know, it's so interesting because I have spent my entire life uh, working, you know, as an activist, working with different groups, really talking about this um, bridge building programs, law, business, like all the different sectors, all these things. And what's so fascinating, I I love to tell people this, but the First book that I wrote was called I'm a Boy of Color. So the first children's book I wrote was called I'm a Boy of Color. Then I wrote a children's book called I'm a Girl of Color. And then I wrote Cloth Crown, right? So these are the three, the three books. And what's been one of the most like fascinating aha, duh kind of moments for me, like both an aha and like a duh, of course, moments, is that by having a children's book, I have been able to have some of the deepest, most profound, most, I think, um, engaging, most challenging conversations, because when you show a book and, and it's got just a beautiful child on the book, right? And it's a children's book. It's something that's accessible. What happens is that people put their guards down. People think, oh, I know a children's book. Right. It's different than if you show a textbook Then people kind of are like, oh, am I I going to be able to handle this or, you know, a novel? Oh, is this going to be too, you know, whatever, too, too, too much of a story that I can't relate to. But a children's book. Oh, I know a children's book. I can get behind a children's book. Right. I can. That's simple. That's not going to require uh, me to have hours and hours and hours. I can you know, I can do that relatively quickly. I can read that. And what's just so fascinating is that people will take it and they put down their, their guards are not up. And then they start to read through the stories and you start to see this transformation and they start to ask questions. And so it becomes this amazing way to build a bridge because um, people are open to it because people wanna get connected to the, the children that are depicted in the story. They wanna understand the artwork and they, they wanna understand what's happening and they wanna empathize with that with that child or what's going on. And so I think it's just um, it's just been fascinating to me how much I'm able to do and have uh, these difficult conversations and through something that's just beautiful, right? That's just this like, has art at its core and that has, uh, you know, and is based in in literature and storytelling. So I think that when I think about bridge building, I think that one of the number one things, we talked a lot on this call about empathy, but one of the number one things you do is you build that empathy. And a children's book is like a fast, easy accessible um but really really powerful way to kind of engage people on this process of starting empathy and if your bridge is built on empathy then it will withstand right it will withstand covid it will withstand uh having different political views it will if, if it's built on empathy um it can withstand the pressures that that come from the world that we can't even anticipate right now
3: right you know, and, and I echo that with you, and Diana, what you said about it. I know Daddy's Turban, particularly was a book that has been doing very well in schools because it was, you know, because when I when the teachers saw it, they said, I, "We never even thought about a little boy wanting to be just like his dad." Duh! I mean, of course, right? Why would you? And that's that thinking shift you know, and that little boy is struggling with tying the dastar because he wants to look just as grand as his father. And, you know, and he's struggling with it and all that, but it was such a, and then it got to be, oh, the conversation, okay, so there's the dastar, so it's not just a turban, so it's the fabric. It's, you build that through the eyes of the little boy and it's non-threatening. It's not somebody coming into your class and giving you a long lecture. It's actually but a child. Like he wants to look just like his father and which child doesn't want to look like his parent, you know, mm-hmm. a little boy or a little girl. And that's for me has been one of those stories that has been really the way the educators have been able to take that story into their classrooms where they have a boy who's wearing a star and be able to show it. So it became a question like, did you go through the same? Is that what you do at home? You know, that became that conversation where all of a sudden, instead of what is that on your head to wow, that, you know, so it changes that narrative. It puts the power in and it's an easy tool. You know, educators need tools to, um, to be able to convey in a meaningful way, in a non-threatening way to their children. And this is that medium, the literature, the books are that medium that goes to them. So we think of, I mean, I, I'm sure all of us, I, I know for sure, look at these as tools which we are putting in the hands of the educators. That's right. Because we can definitely not be in every school But these books can, and they take it to a different level. And the educators will use it to the best of their capacity because they are trained to think, when they look at books like this, how we can best use that so that the entire class, the community, everyone feels welcome, and everybody feels that they have a say, and they are actually of the same weight, nothing not one group is weighed more than the other. Awesome.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely, thank you. I think, yes, I definitely agree with the the accessibility of children's books and kind of maybe the absence of a supposed agenda um, and just, yeah, having the space to tell a story. Before we wrap up our conversation we do have one last question um and if we have any and by we i mean the panelists if the panelists have any um final remarks that they would like to add with that question please do so our last question is from harkir singh from new jersey they ask i recently saw some very good quotes from a video game series and one of these quotes was Yesterday's enemies are today's recruits. Train them to fight alongside you and pray they eventually don't decide to hate you for it. And this reminded them of Sikhi. Um, We make friends even though they are enemies. And I found this in many stories, even in some children's books. Um, is this what we have to follow in our lives? Or perhaps we can all reflect and think about this question. Um, yeah, that Herkyath has posed.
2: So in the cloth crown, I think we kind of hit on this topic because the little boy in the story is being teased because of his um, vodka and he comes home and he's like wrestling with the question, should I cut my hair or should I not cut my hair? And his father actually you know, says, um, let me tell you why. Let me tell you my own story of this experience, so that you know that you're not alone. But let me also tell you why I wear my turban, like what it means, um, what it means to me. And then the young, you know, the young man in his story is able to say, like, you know, I decide, I had the same moment, and and then I decided that I wasn't going to cut my hair, but I decided I was going to try and teach uh, the people who had had bullied me right like why it's important to me like why i actually do this and as i was like writing the story as i read it to other children as you know i even saw my own you know father looking at the story you feel this sense of pride right this moment where it's like let me use this moment where maybe it, it feels painful but let me use this moment as an educational moment right like let me use this moment to say maybe the reason why you're bullying me or you're 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 which is awful and terrible you know and i'm not saying everybody has to, to do and respond in this way but let me in this moment use it as an opportunity to educate and to say no this is bigger than maybe you just feel uncomfortable i'm just gonna give you the benefit of the doubt like. I'm not going to even call you my enemy. I'm just going to think that maybe you feel uncomfortable and you're lashing out at me because you feel uncomfortable. Let me use that discomfort to actually educate you on why this is so important. Let me see if I can really get to the places that will um, pull at your heart. And I think that that's the uh, that's the power, right? Like that if we come to people and we're like, "Rah, rah, rah! You're bad," or "You better listen to me," or "Here's what you you know what you're doing wrong," are you going to change anybody? Not really. But if you come at them and you say, "Can I just show you the human side of me? and can I see the human side of you? Can I connect with who you are and what why you believe the things that you believe? And can I show you my own story and why I believe? That's where I think hearts and minds change, right? Like I think that's where we have the real power. So I, I love, you know, reading um Innie's work. I love reading Simmons work because you can feel that there's this educational component, even if it's not like I'm gonna hit you over the head with it, that even in the stories, there's this educational component of, no, I'm proud of who I am, and this is important for me to be able to show up in this way. And I would love for those of you who are on the periphery who might think about you know us and want to put us in a different box, I would love for you to remove that box and to come over here and let me come over there and let's build a bridge to each other. That, that's that's real power and real change.
3: You know, it was interesting when, uh, Maglinda, when you were talking about and you the question had enemies, enemies, enemies so many times repeated. And all I could think about was there are no enemies in Sikhi, we are one, there is no stranger, right? So even this idea of the word choice of enemy is just not there. And that I get go back to the principle of the faith of the oneness of, uh, you know, incorporating that putting that out there, it is such a, a foreign concept, you know, because of the interfaith work that also I do, and I'm sure Simranjit also also could speak to that, that this idea that there is, that the light is an all, and that light is the same, is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally shocks the interfaith world, when I speak about it and then you bring that down and that's actually now going to be the focus of my work is to take that particular principle and apply it to every book that I am going to be doing for the mainstream. That oneness without even using any of the sick terminology, but that's the framework. So going forward, you know, if you ask what is the, that's my. Because in this today's day and age, that is what I feel. The message of Guru Nanak is so important. And to bring that in ways, shapes, and forms which people can handle. And I think children's way books are the easiest way because if the child grows up reading that, believing that we are winning. The world is winning. Everything that you learn up to the age of ten is absorbed in your subconscious. You don't even see anything after that. You have to work at getting rid of, and you, it's too late by the age of ten. Sad to say. So we have that window of working with, uh, you know, with the children for that neck for the coming generations, and I'm so looking forward to that work. Truly excited to be able to do something magical there with that principle of picking car.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I'll I'll just add to that. I, I, you know, no disagreements here. And I I think, Hargirith, your your question is a great one because in this context where our world is so polarized, we're living in, in the same kinds of binaries that our gurus questioned. And they, and what they said was, it doesn't have to be this way, right? Like this, this idea of friend versus enemy is, is not one that is, um, so it doesn't, it doesn't work with my understanding of Sikhi. And I, I look at Guru Tegbaha Bahadur I mean, as, as an example for, for a lot of this type of work in this moment and trying to understand what does it look like in a world where people hate you um for whatever reason um and, and you don't want to hate them um and, and what does it take to get there and, and so what any just shared is, is a beautiful and really helpful practical way of of reimagining that and, and some of the principles that i take we take life an example right he says um Lo Mohin Abeman, kahan aik sunreem na Somurat Bhagwan, right? That's in um, that's in Sulok uh, Mahalanova. And what he's talking, he's destroying our senses of binaries. He follows that up by saying, "Wistat nindia nahe jehe kanchan lo suman." He follows that up by saying, "Harakso gja kanahe badi meets someone, right?" So he's saying, like in this one, someone who's not affected by pleasure or pain. Harakso gja kanahe badi meets someone, someone who sees friends and enemies. Badi. Enemies, friends, meet Saman, sees them as the same. Uh, Nanak Saib says, listen, oh, my mind. Those people are the truly liberated people. So, So what does liberation look like? Liberation for us looks like going beyond these binaries of good and bad, of friend and enemy, and being able to say, you know, you may hate me, but I can find a way to connect with you and maybe even bring you along into connection. Um, and I think that's what storytelling has the power to do, right? By, by introducing people to a book, um, kids to a character who they wouldn't otherwise know and just connecting with them on a human level through their life story, like that is, that's real empathy and that's real connection. And so um, I think that's, I mean, I'm just trying to echo what I'm hearing from from N.E.G. And, and from Deanna, like, that's what this work does. That's what new books do. And that's also like what, as a parent, I want to be for my kids. I want them to be able to learn to see the humanity in everyone that they meet, because that seems like a good life, right? Like that's where that's where liberation comes. Uh, you're not weighed down by anger or any sort of hatred or toxicity that just creates so much pain in our lives. So um, I think, to me, that's that's the value of this kind of storytelling uh, and and how we can make it align with our politics.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you everyone. Thank you to all of our presenters today. I think what I heard in this last question was honestly a lot of of bridge building, whether it be between the binaries, to find the connection between between the two ends, perhaps, um, and the bridge building between communities, both internally and externally, um, and moving from that discomfort that, that perhaps occurs in some of these in some of our experiences and kind of, yeah, liberating it towards action, um, which I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of in between, but that's, I think, how the the bridge gets built, or at least in my understanding, um, from what I've picked up in this conversation today is what I'll leave with, I think. Um, and just so the audience knows, I have um, put some links in our chat box. So if you'd like to engage with some of Deanna Singh's work um, further, I have thrown a link in for a three-day virtual summit that you will be hosting. And if you would like to purchase any of the books that have been mentioned here today and some that haven't been, um, I have put the links for the virtual stores or the online stores um, in there as well. So just to wrap up today's conversation, um, I would like to remind everyone that the SIG Research Institute hosts um, monthly live webinars. Join us in conversation on December 5th for Baivir Singh's 148th birthday with scholar Nikki Guninder Singh, author, poet, and artist Ini Gore, who you already know, and educator Surinder Singh as they discuss the poetry, the Gurbani, and the everlasting inspiration of Baivir Singh. And lastly, don't forget to tune to the Sick Cast, a podcast produced by Sikri where we explore the various issues and events affecting, worldwide, affecting sex worldwide. Thank you again so much to all of our panelists for joining us today. Today's webinar will be ending now. Vagujika khalsa, vagujiki fate.
0: You are listening to Cast by SIGC Research Institute, illuminating every path.